Hello and welcome to the Marysville Church of Christ podcast. This is Commute, and I'm your host today, Bishop Darby. We're going to unpack a lesson that was given a couple weeks ago, asking some tough questions, like to what degree does God know the future? What exactly does it mean to be in control of your own life? And how exactly does free will work? Today joining us, we actually have a special guest, our Director of Creativity, our intern here at Marysville Church of Christ, Jesse Davis. Jesse, how are you doing today, man? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. Excited to jump into today, but before we do, uh, you actually got a little bit of a sneak peek to this lesson before the members of our church did, and then the podcasting community. I guess we can call them podrishners. I guess that kind of works. <laughs> but uh, they got to—you got to hear a little bit of a head start. We did this class actually as a teen class first. What were your thoughts when you first heard uh, the material that was covered? Um, honestly, it just kind of backed a lot of things that I'd already been uh, thinking about and believing. Uh, kind of growing up with the idea that. My future was, you know, predetermined and laid out for me, and I didn't really have a say in the matter. Um, really wasn't a, a belief that I held too strongly to, and it, it didn't make me feel loved like uh, I felt I was supposed to um, by God and stuff. And so hearing uh, some of the material here really um, kind of gave me more evidence and proof to um, what I had already thought. I think a lot of us feel that way, um, just trying to wrestle with what it means to have choice in a world where we're told in the Christian realm that God predetermines. Uh, what does it mean to be free? What does it mean to have choice? What does it mean to make decisions? And all these passages about choosing salvation seem so hollow if at the end of the day, God either already knows if you're going to or not, or is forcing you down a path uh, either of salvation or damnation. But Let's not rehash too much. If you have not yet listened to the teaching podcast uh, entitled The Son of Promise, go ahead and stop me right now. Go listen to that and come back. Otherwise, these next couple minutes might get a little confusing for you. But uh, Jesse, we actually had uh, a lot of our members send in questions. They wanted to know more. Uh, so we're going to address some of the questions that have been asked. I think the best way to do it is how about you pitch them to me. I'll give you some answers. And then at the end, if you have anything you want to add or questions that you have, we'll address those as well. Sound like a plan? Uh, yeah, sounds good to me. Let's get started with the first question here. Uh, so the first question, uh, someone's curious, what about prophecies? How does that fit into this whole picture that you've laid out? Yeah, it does seem kind of odd. Uh, how can I say that God doesn't know the future when seemingly frequently he accurately predicts what's going to occur? Well, let me start by saying this. I think we actually misunderstand what prophecies are. We believe that prophecy is the ability of one to tell the future accurately. But in the Bible, the word prophecy is actually the word oracle. And what it means is simply a message from God. See, one thing that we have to realize is that almost all of God's prophecies are contingent, meaning they can or cannot occur. We see this happening all the time. If you repent, this will happen. But if you don't, this will happen, indicating that there are two very clear possibilities both prophesied about. But also a lot of the times, prophecies have more than one fulfillment. We, we all believe, I think incorrectly, that when God says something, that it can only happen once, that the prophecy only has one fulfillment. But that's not true. For instance, look at the example of Joel 2. Joel 2, we he see these prophecy of men and women prophesying in the spirit of God and calling out in the streets and praying and, and God's spirit clearly being evident among them. This was a prophecy about the return from exile, fulfilled well before Christ. But in Acts chapter 2, when Peter's giving the sermon on the day of Pentecost, he actually references Joel 2 as a prophecy being fulfilled in that moment. But Joel 2 had already been fulfilled. 
This reveals that God's prophecies aren't necessarily about specific events, but occurring events that will happen over and over again. That prophecies don't have to happen only once to come true, but can happen several times. So many times in the Bible, God prophesies about the rising and falling of nations. Well, that's not necessarily about one specific nation, but just the course of history of what's happened and what will happen again. But more than that, we got to be careful as Christians by, by saying that all prophecies God makes come true because they don't. I have sitting here in front of me on our show sheet so many examples that I can't go to, but what about the prophecy of, against Zedekiah by Jeremiah? When he talks about the, the idea of what's going to happen in his death, and it doesn't happen because of, well, things change. People's choices change. What about in Jehoiakim's death in Jeremiah chapter 22 or Jeremiah chapter 36 or in 2 Kings chapter 24, Ezekiel 26 through 28? What about Ezekiel 29? What about all of these instances in which prophecies that God say will happen a certain way don't because of the free moral agency of people? What this reveals is that when God is giving oracles, what he's saying is this is what may happen, what may occur, what could happen if things don't change. We like to paint God as a a God who only has power because he can accurately predict what's going to happen. But to me, that's a weaker God than a God who doesn't actually have to know every event that's going to occur in order to guarantee his win. So what about prophecies? Well, prophecies, first of all, aren't always about telling the future. Sometimes they're just messages from God. They're always, almost always, contingent, meaning it's all predicated on what people choose to do. And thirdly, it's not God's divine power. God's divine power isn't to control, but rather to be able to work in the lives of free moral agents. So that's my answer to the first one, Jesse. All right. I'm satisfied by that answer. Um, People are also asking, though, along the same vein, what about Judas? How did Jesus know about Judas and that he would betray him? Okay, background, I hate this question. Uh, (laughs) That's tied back to a story in college where I had to give this answer uh, in a presentation, and one of my professors asked me 36 questions in quick succession, and I was able to answer 35 of them in the time slot, but the one question I didn't get to was Judas. So when he got back up to rebuttal, all he said was, well, what about Judas? So whenever anyone asks this, I think it's a great question. I'm a little bit bitter, but uh, you know what, Ralph? I forgive you in the name of Jesus Christ. Um, So what about Judas? One thing I think is interesting is that we know that Jesus was going to be betrayed. He prophesied that he was going to be betrayed, and not the oracle kind of prophecy, but he specifically said that he was going to be betrayed by one whom he loved. What's interesting is he didn't say who, and the reason he didn't say who is because I don't think it was set on who. I think Jesus compiled the right number of people, the 12, and he knew that one of them would betray him. But we also don't know even what the betrayal looked like. What if the betrayal that he was talking about was something along the lines of what Peter did, betraying that he knew Christ? What if it was a betrayal like James did or, or Andrew, where he simply left him at the cross? We don't necessarily know what the betrayal had to be, just that someone was going to betray him, which, by the way, all except for John did at different points in this narrative. But other than that, we also get this really interesting narrative where Satan is actually wrestling with Jesus. And Jesus says, uh, be gone, Satan. And then he looks at Peter and says, for he's trying to sift you like wheat, indicating that Satan was working on all of the 12 for one of them to betray Christ. Judas just happened to be the one he was able to get. So what about Judas? I think God can accurately say that given enough free moral agents in a room, one of them is going to make a bad choice. I think, actually, you don't even need the divine intelligence of God to be able to say that. You put 12 people in a room for three years, they're going to make a mistake at some point. Jesus simply said that one of them is going to make a mistake that Satan's going to capitalize on, which he did. 
right, well, hopefully Ralph can hear that at some point. <laughs> um, next question is, uh, how does this kind of idea that God doesn't know the future and that the future isn't predetermined affect prayer? How does it change it? It's a great question. Um, this one is really powerful to me. Um, when you bow on your knees and you pray, if you believe God predestined the future, what exactly are you praying for? I mean, the reality is that God's future that he already wrote happens the way it was written. Well, okay. Well, yeah, then then good. But if you believe prayer can actually change things, and you have to believe that the, the future is to some degree open because you're believing that by you asking, something different will occur. So... How does, how does the open view of the future, how does this idea that the future is not set but simply exists in possibilities change your prayer life? It completely unlocks your prayer life. It changes everything about your prayer life because now when you fall on your knees and pray, you are defining the future that you will experience. Your words paired with God's power can change everything. There is nothing set in stone. The future is, does not exist yet. And so you are able to define it by your prayer. Prayer becomes so much more powerful. You don't like the situation of the world. You don't like the situation in your family. You don't like the situation in your life. You don't like a temptation you fall to. You don't like an addiction that you're struggling with. Well, guess what? You have the power through prayer to change your future forever. Prayer becomes not just this thing that you ritualistically do because you're told in Bible class that you have to. Prayer becomes this thing that can change the world. Every single time you utter it. Exodus 32, Moses' prayer saved Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses' prayer saved Israel. We get time and time again, Amos chapter 7, Amos' prayer changes the world. I mean, honestly, so many examples we could go through of how prayer definitively changes not just your life, but the future of others, the future of the world, the future of the cosmos. Your life is going to be defined on how many prayers you gave and what God did through them. But also our lives are going to be defined on how many prayers we didn't utter that could have changed everything. So, how does this change prayer? I think it gives power to prayer. All right, our final question is, if God can't control us, if God doesn't control us, then how can we trust God? You know, that's an interesting question. Um, and one that I, I think we're asking the wrong question. If we serve a God who can control us, if we, sorry, if we serve a God who can control us, then how could we trust him? Because every single bad thing we ever do, he's responsible for. Every single bad tragedy that occurs, he's responsible for. I can't trust a God who has given me cancer, taken away my loved ones, put me in economic uncertainty, and given me difficult tests that, that are intrinsically designed to make me hurt. That's a God I can't trust. I can trust a God, though, who's experiencing life the way I am, moment by moment. But the difference between him and I is that he is eternally prepared for every possibility that could occur. I'm not. When cancer is inflicted upon me, when I, when I develop a disease, when I'm struggling with economic uncertainty, when these things are occurring to me, God is discovering them the same time I am, and he's already prepared on how he's going to make it better. That's how I can trust him. There is no situation that's going to happen in my, earth, or in my life that's going to catch him unprepared. There is nothing that is going to occur that's going to leave him flabbergasted or befuddled. What I do know is that I have God every single day who is constantly working to serve good for me. So that would be my answer. Um, I, think we can I think we can trust a God who can't control us far more than a God that can. Because then we're not, we're not having to worry about, wrestle with all the bad things that happen, trying to parse out blame. Is this God? Is this me? It's, what we can definitively say is if anything good happens in our life, it's God working good. If anything bad happens, it's the result of a free moral decision or a fallen nature. That is a God that I can trust and a God who I can definitively put my hope in. We're also not saying here that God has no control at all. 
We're simply saying that God has no, no ability to like come in and make me make good or bad decisions. That those decisions are my responsibility, not his. But that God will be ready to bring good regardless of what I do. So, Jesse, that kind of uh, wraps up the questions that was given. What are your thoughts on all of this? You know, as I kind of said before, um, even from an early age, you know, growing up in the church and everything and hearing, um, you know, that God knew what I was going to do and that, you know, my future was set out before me, it really didn't make me feel loved and cherished and important because I asked the questions, well, if God knows what I'm going to do and God knows what everyone's going to do, then doesn't that mean people are born destined to go to hell? People are born destined to be bad people um and doesn't that mean that i'm born you know destined to be someone that i don't pick to be someone that was set out for me um and these thoughts i always kind of struggled with and so i just kind of came to the belief that it can't it can't be that way um that i have to be able to make my own choices because i want to love god and i want to be loved by god and that's something that i choose not something that someone else chooses for me um, and so a lot of these answers and a lot of these questions um, mirror a, a kind of own process in my life. And um, I really do agree with a lot of the answers that you gave and um, this kind of idea that the fact that God doesn't know the future, that it's not determined for us, just makes God more loving and more powerful than a God who has just set out a theater for him and isn't um, actually involved in relationship. See, I think that's a great way to wrap up the show today. Honestly, your words are profound and beautiful, and I think they're accurate. All we're trying to do here is get you to realize, wherever you're listening to this and however you're listening to this, that God loves you, and he's a God of love, that there is no darkness inside of him. He's not responsible for anything but the good in your life. And it's imperative that as we do this journey with him, that we understand him, care for him, and see him the way he wants to be seen, beautiful, as light and love. 